Well, hey there, writer. Welcome to the Resilient Writers Radio Show. I'm your host, Rhonda Douglas, and this is the podcast for writers who want to create and sustain a writing life they love. Because, let's face it, the writing life has its ups and downs, and we want to not just write, but also to be able to enjoy the process so that we'll spend more time with our butt in chair getting those words on the page. This podcast is for writers who love books and everything that goes into the making of them. For writers who want to learn and grow in their craft and improve their writing skills. Writers who want to finish their books and get them out into the world so their ideal readers can enjoy them. Writers who want to spend more time in that flow state. Writers who want to connect with other writers to celebrate and be in community in this crazy roller coaster ride we call the writing life. We are resilient writers. We're writing for the rest of our lives and we're having a good time doing it. So, welcome, writer. I'm so glad you're here. Let's jump right into today's show. Hey there, writer. Welcome back to another episode of the Resilient Writers Radio Show. I'm excited to have with me today um, Mary Carol Moore. And Mary is an Amazon best-selling and award-winning writer of 14 books in three different genres. She has been a chef and a former cooking cooking school instructor. Um, and her latest novel is called A Woman's Guide to Search and Rescue, came out in uh, late 2023. And it's a cross-genre literary thriller that details a woman's escape, um, her fight for survival, and how she flees to her estranged sister who doesn't even know she exists. Um, so um, Mary has an MFA and she's taught writing around the world. Um, and her writing journey started after she attended Le Cordon Bleu in Paris, where she went on to write cookbooks for the California Culinary Academy and a culinary colony, a column for the LA Times for over a decade. So that's quite a switch. Talk to us a little bit about how you went from cooking to writing. So I started my writing life as a food journalist from that experience in France. I, I lived there for a year and I came home with this huge passion for cooking, which is not unusual if anyone loves France. And I was asked to write a monthly cooking column for the local magazine in Arizona where I lived. And that grew to books and that grew to the syndicated column for the LA Times that you mentioned. I had a really steady and profitable career, but in 2000, I got breast cancer and I realized I needed to look carefully at what I wanted most with my writing because the cancer was serious. And, you know, I, I, this sounds kind of, um, well, I don't know that it's blasé, but it's it's kind of a stereotype about not wanting to die without having reached my most important dreams as an art, a creative artist. So I did the crazy thing of quitting my job and my food writing. I was I was in contract for two books. I finished those, went back to school for the MFA, and a couple of years later, my first novel was accepted for publication. Wow, that's an amazing journey. So your first books were cookbooks, were they? Yes, they were. And one of them, the first one actually, which was written in co conjunction with the California Culinary Academy, won a Julia Child Award, which was the biggest cooking award at that time. I didn't even know about it. I didn't know what it was. They invited me to the awards ceremony in New York City, and I didn't go because I didn't know what I was doing. I was so young. Um, but my passion for food really came through in that book, I guess. So that was exciting. And wow. that really launched the career. Wow. And so when did you turn your hand to fiction? How did that happen? 
Well, when I had the cancer and went through the therapies, the treatment, chemotherapy, um, it it took me about a year uh, to really kind of sit back and and look at my life and see what was I missing. And um, I felt like fiction had always been rumbling in the background. I really, really wanted to learn it. So I thought, oh, it's easy. You know, I'm a professional writer. So what if I'm a nonfiction writer? I'm a journalist. I know how to do it and I'll try my hand. And I completely failed. That first uh, attempt at fiction writing was so bad. It's still in the drawer, which many people actually have a, a book in the drawer. A and drawer I, or two. Yeah, yeah or a drawer <laughs> too, right? And I I ended up realizing I needed to learn the language of fiction. And so um, it took me a lot of thought, but I decided to use some of my savings and take time off and you know make the career switch, go into writing full time and see if I could make the... Uh, fiction work. Wow. Where did you end up doing your MFA? I went to Goddard, which is a small uh, liberal arts college in Vermont. And the reason I did that was because they were one of the first low residency programs for MFAs. And I didn't really have the bucks, really. I didn't have the funds or the resources to live um, on campus and attend a full-time school. So I had just enough saved from my cookbooks to um, do the low residency and, you know, keep working as a journalist as much as I could to keep the bills paid. Mm, I did low residency too. I love it as an option. It's so flexible. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's the way, it's the way the world right now, people have so much to juggle. Mm -hmm. And um, what do you feel like you gained from, from doing an MFA? Would you do it all over again if you had to? If I had to, yeah. I even considered going back again for um, another one, but you know, they cost money, so I didn't. But the um, the thing I got was really interesting. I'm, I tend to write in images. I'm a very lyrical writer, which is maybe why I found such a comfortable home in food writing for so many years. Because as you know, food is all about sensory detail, the pleasures of smell, taste, and texture. And when I went to grad school for the MFA, my fiction advisor, the first one I had, was a minimalist. She wrote short stories, and she wrote uh, kind of in a Raymond Carver style, very, very sparse wording, very few images. And she would take her red pen on the pages I sent to her every three weeks and X out whole pages of my work. And she scolded me. She said, you are, you know, enough here, enough, too much description. So I had to learn to balance that very natural tendency. And my program included study of minimalist writers for a few years because I had to learn about the complete opposite. And it was so valuable to me because now I know what my tendency is as well as my strength but I know how to balance them. It's funny, isn't it? How like our greatest strength is also can be our greatest weakness. And we have yeah. to kind of learn to, to rein it in. That's so exactly your, true. Your latest novel is called A Woman's Guide to Search and Rescue. Um, can you tell me where that originated? Like where, where did the idea come from for that novel? Well, my mom was the pilot. And in 1942, she got her commercial license. She was only 22 years old. And she got uh, she applied twice and finally got into the Women's Air Force Service Pilots Program here in the States. It was during the war to relieve men, basically, for military duty. These women took who, who were very skilled pilots took over the training and the fairing of aircraft from one location to another. And my mom served in that Women's Air Force Service pilots program for two years at 22. And she, you know, growing up with a mother who was a pilot when women never did that kind of stuff was just a a legacy I could not let go of. And even though she had four kids and stopped flying when my she was pregnant with my older sister, 
it ended up being kind of this background hum in our lives of, wow, you know, people ask me, what does your dad do? And I say, well, my mom was a pilot. <laughs> you know, it's just kind of like, I love this idea of living with this woman who was so amazing. And yet ordinary person every day, I couldn't see the pilot in her. What what gave her that strength and that, mm, I don't know, purpose? So I decided I'd research the lives of women pilots, and I wanted to write about them. And my novel, A Woman's Guide to Search and Rescue, is about two sisters who are estranged, who are both trained by their father, who was a pilot, stunt pilot. And flying is big in that book. The whole idea of what women need in order to be pilots, what kind of aviator um, personality comes through in a woman's life if they're really fixed with the in, in the sky, you know, they love the sky more than the ground. So my mom was really the inspiration. And I wrote the novel to kind of get behind the mystery of who she was. I even took flying lessons at one point to uh, kind of see I what was it was gonna like. Ask you. Yeah. I was going to ask you that, like, what kind of, how do you do the research for something that is quite complicated? I mean, other than brain surgery, it's, you know, like, it's a pretty precise skill. So what kind of research did you do for the book? Well, I had it's a great question. I had um, not just the piloting experience, but also these women are search and rescue pilots. So you have the search and rescue process as well, the um, ground crew, et cetera. And I had the best resources in the world. One of my students, when I taught writing in Minnesota, was a flight instructor, Sylvia. And Sylvia and I would get together regularly about my scenes because, you know, about, basically I knew nothing about it. So she'd say, okay, well, send me one of your chapters, one of the flying chapters, and let me look at it. And she took the chapters to her cohort of three other instructors, and they sat down and they brainstormed things like, how do you crash? You know, because I had an opening scene in my book is the one of the characters has to emergency land and she ends up crashing. I wanted her to walk away. I wanted the plane to explode. And her not to be hurt by it, you know, so they sat for a whole weekend figuring this one out. And then she came, Sylvia came back to me and said, well, okay, here's what you do. And then I'd run this, the revised scene by her again, just to make sure. I did the same with the search and rescue scenes. I had two, I was very lucky. I had two students who were search and rescue workers in California. So they got me in touch with the um, organization there. And I had a, I had a lot of help. Really, I did. It was because um, I, I believe in research as being very accurate. It has to be accurate in a book like this. That's amazing. Wow. I've never heard of anyone using their, their writing students as resources like that. It's so great. It's so great. They What's didn't your seem writing to be life now? My writing life now. Wow. Um, well, having a book published is an all consuming experience. So I had um, probably about a year once my book was finished, ready to be published. I had about a year of getting ready for that and to kind of balance my, I don't know, outreach. The outreach life for a writer is completely different than the inner creative work. So I've been working on some short stories. I have a collection of short stories I'm putting together. So I work, I try to work every day on my writing. Um, I also write a Substack um, newsletter every week. So that is a really great outlet for me during this publication time to talk about what I'm learning and all the things that writers have to face when they eventually decide to, you know, release their book into the world. And um, you're an Amazon bestselling author. What is that experience like? Does it make oh, much of a difference? It does. It makes a huge difference. 
early on in the process, I didn't really know much about promoting my book. And I hired a publicist who um, encouraged me to, you know, try to try pre-orders. Pre-orders is something that, you know, there's controversy about whether that works or not. Major publishers usually use them. And the idea is that you set the book up for people to buy before it's actually released. And so I set my pre-orders up in August. And at the same time, I hired um, a blog tour. I I don't know if this is something that your listeners know about, but there's bookstagrammers and book talk and all kinds of online social media, people who have like 50,000 followers and they're all crazy about books. So there's different blog tours that you can hire. They're not very expensive. And then your book will be read and posted by these bloggers. So in August, I think it was mid-August, I had my blog tour. And the next day, my book went into bestseller status and hot new release on Amazon just from that. Oh, my Lord. So it sounds like the blog tour is a really good tool. Well, it's a very it's very effective. I did not know this. It was a real gamble. But uh, like I said, it's not very expensive. And it was it was very cool to see the numbers. My friend who's a many public many many book published author she called me the next day she said you're a hot new release i said what's that <laughs> and she said look on your amazon page you're you're like in three categories you're like number 3 and number 5 um as bestseller so that was phenomenal and the audiobook of my book has stayed in the bestseller list all these months till till now it's still on so wow it's, it's that's amazing. pretty cool i know i think congratulations it's, it's thank great. you I think it generates interest. They they call it buzz, of course, but I think it generates interest among readers to see, you know, oh wow, this person is getting a lot of sales. I I might want to check their book out or the blog bloggers that are on the tour say, "Wow, I love this book." And then their followers say, "Well, I'm passionate about books too. I'm going to read it." And then they pre-order it. So, it's a cool little system I didn't even know about. Yeah, there's a lot behind the scenes in book marketing, right? To think about. Um so, Mary, you write in um, across genres, right? You're writing in multiple genres. So what is that like? I, it's something I do as well. How do you handle that in your life? Do you always have, you know, a few different projects on the go and switch between them? Or do you focus on one? Or, you know, how do you, do. Yeah. How do you incorporate that? Well, I think I have always my Substack every week, which is a nonfiction, you know, it's about the writing craft. So I have to go into my own history of what, I am as a writer, how I do my practice every day, what I'm learning, the things I have questions about, resources that I found and share those. So that's kind of my basic. Um, I have to do this every week. I've committed since 2008 to run these newsletters. And that's kind of the first level of my writing. And then when I can, I switch gears into the fiction. And that takes some it's a really good question you're asking because it takes a different kind of internal uh, state to move into fiction. I find that fiction requires kind of an inner silence. I have um, a lovely walk in our neighborhood. We live in the country and I have a three mile walk that I do most weather. And um, I bundle up now and I do my walk and I start to muse over the story I'm working on. And that will be my way of switching out from the nonfiction into the fiction because I need that kind of inner incubation time. It's so different. Fiction, I never knew this till I did the MFA, that fiction is so different in a language and its tone 
and rhythm. Yeah, and even in um, how it comes to you, that that sort of internal sense, you know, what it feels like before you can sit down and write. And I find I work in poetry, and I find that poetry is different still. Again, um, do you write poetry at all? I've had two poems published. I think not not much. Oh, yeah, yeah, I, I I love poetry and I used to write it a lot. It's a wonderful form for um, entering that kind of deeper contemplation with your characters or whatever. So sometimes one of my exercises in class was always to take a character and write a poem about them. And um, that was a Stuart Dybeck. He's a short story writer. And he used that technique and I loved it because it'll switch you into that fiction-ish mode. So you must know this from writing poetry yourself. It's just such a great way to get into that um, more dreamy state. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So um, now that you've done um, A Woman's Guide to Search and Rescue, which is based on your you know, your experience with your mother and kind of has its roots in um, real life, in in you know, um, in history, are is that something you're going to stick with, or are you moving on to something else? Well, actually, I have another book coming out in the spring, in April, and it's called Last Bets, and it's about two women from different cultures escaping to an island in the Caribbean when their lives fall apart, and then becoming kind of unlikely companions in this uh, gambling world that's there. Uh, some of the Caribbean islands are tournament centers for things like backgammon, which you'd never imagine be to be a gambling hot thing. But I, I am a scuba diver, and I spent time down in the Caribbean on this island, Bonaire, and found that people bet their yachts in a night, you know? And so I thought, how fascinating. What if someone got caught in that world and they didn't want to? And what would it do to them? So this book, Last Bets, is coming out in April. And I'm already working on um, starting to spread the word about it. And it's kind of like too many books, Get those too little pre-orders time. in now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In January, the pre-orders will start for that one. It's exciting. I love fast-paced stories with really strong women characters. So that's the kind of signature that I work with as a writer. And this one is very fast-paced as well. Mm, Wow. I bet the research for that one was fun. Oh, my goodness. Well, I knew scuba diving pretty well. I had no idea about gambling. I'm not a gambler. So I I love backgammon just as an observer. So researching how incredible the tournaments are around the world and how they're kind of a cult in a way, because people think, oh, you know, Las Vegas or poker or something like that, if you want to do high stakes, but backgammon has a huge following for that. So that was fascinating, that whole world. You know, when you research for a novel. I had no idea. I I had had no no idea idea. either. Yeah, really, really unusual. I mean, people that think about backgammon, they think, oh, yeah, we play it like cribbage, you know, in the evenings by the fire, but it's actually a high stakes because it's not based on luck. It's only based on skill, unlike poker, which can have luck. And here I am talking like I know things about gambling and I know nothing except what I've researched. (laughs) It's the writer's life, right? We know just enough to sound like (laughs) we know what we're talking about. So great. So are you are you basically writing a book a year? Like what's what's your pace like? And oh, uh, how quickly do, are you are you getting them done? I don't I don't do that many that fast. My A Woman's Guide to Search and Rescue, my book that's just come out, took ten years. That's my normal pace. So I'm very slow. But I happened while my agent was working on A Woman's Guide to Search and Rescue, I had the idea for this other book, and a friend said the best way to distract yourself when you're waiting for news is to write. And so I put a lot of time into Last Bets. 
she was a she was very slow. My agent's great, but she's slow. And so it took her months to get back to me about, you know, edits that she'd recommend on Woman's Guide. And in the meantime, I got this draft of Last Bets done. And I thought, hey, I really like this story. So it they, it was almost like the two books got created in tandem. And when Women's Guide was ready to be published, I thought, well, I have Last Bets almost done. What if I spent more time on it and got it ready too? And then what if they rode the momentum of each other? That's that's a new idea, completely different than my nature, wow. which is to go mm-hmm. slow. It's interesting because in the indie publishing world, you know, people are counseled, um, do fast releases to have one book come out after the oh. other. Um, and when you became an Amazon bestseller, is it, have you ever been tempted to go indie now that you've had this kind of success in the traditional publishing world? Well, I have been in the traditional publishing world all my life, but this book that just came out is indie. I decided I really wanted control over it. I had my last experience with fiction, although I loved my editor, the publisher was not um, as meticulous as I'd like. I guess that's the best word. And I, I was very disappointed in the way it came out. So I decided if I had the resources, I could save enough money to do it, I would do indie. And I went ahead and created my own imprint and did indie. And I'm going to do that with Last Bets as well. I love working with an agent, though, because Mm -hmm. I I get um, a professional's viewpoint on how sellable the book is. And she's 100% behind my indie um, venture. And it's funny, other writers that I know have chosen to go indie between other books, you know, do it with the main publisher and then go indie on your own to see the difference. Um, indie actually makes as much money now as main mainstream. Um, it, you know, it's, it's a lot more effort and you have to kind of have the resources to do it, but you have all the control in the world. And I love that. I really did. Yeah. I think the creative control is the main reason really people end up going indie, you know, they just have an idea of what they want the book to be. So, but your agent is on board. With yeah. That. She's That's totally amazing. on board. Yeah. She, you know, she said, let's try to sell it as it is. And I, you know, I had trouble with a woman's guide being available and accessible to mainstream publishers because it's cross genre. It's a literary thriller, which means it's a literary fiction it has women's fiction kind of as its base but it has a thriller plot. And so they didn't know. I, we got feedback from all the big guys saying, we love this book. We had no idea how to sell it because it just doesn't fit. And she came back to me and said, well, you know, here's an option for you. So I went ahead and took it. And I thought this is a really, this, it was a very successful experience. And, you know, from sales alone, I think it's profitable as well. Uh, it's hard though. I would not recommend it to everybody because you really do have to know the industry and I've been published long enough to where I do and I had my agent's help. So yeah, it's kind of funny, isn't it? It's like a whole mix of options now for writers. It's very mixed. Wow. That's amazing. I'm I was I'm surprised to hear you had an agent that was supportive of it. I think that's rare and uh and so great that you have that that kind of relationship with your agent that they were willing to be supportive of that. So um and last bets you'll do the same? Yeah, I'll do the same. Yeah. And Truthfully, Rhonda, it's not as unusual as I thought either. Uh, several of my students who have agents have actually been published by thing by ep- by um, Epigraph is one. She writes Press is another, and they're they're called hybrid publishers. So they basically have the same setup as I'm doing, and they're very respected now. So Brooke Warner, who's the head of She Writes Press, is a very respected industry professional and knows a lot about publishing and 
I think it's a way of the future because uh, traditional publishing is mm-hmm. um, challenging right now, really challenging. It's very challenging on the, you know, I'm sure it's challenging on the publishing side, but it certainly is if you're a writer, um, as you say, like writing something that, that the marketing department doesn't know what to do with, you know, that works really well, that writers want to read, but the marketing department is like, we don't know where we put this on the shelves. Yeah. And that becomes an issue. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for doing um, this talk with me, Mary. It's just been fascinating hearing about your process. I'm so glad that you asked me. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks so much for hanging out with me today and for listening all the way to the end. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Resilient Writers Radio Show. While you're here, I would really appreciate it if you'd consider leaving a rating and review of the show. You can do that in whatever app you're using to listen to the show right now, and it just takes a few minutes. Your ratings and reviews tell the podcast algorithm gods that yes, this is a great show, definitely recommend it to other writers. And that will help us reach new listeners who might need a boost in their writing lives today as well. So please take a moment and leave a review. I'd really appreciate it. And I promise to read every single one. Thank you so much. Thank you.